Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. These stories were recorded in front of a live audience on August 24th, 2019 at Provincetown Theatre in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The theme was Let Down. All right, please put your hands together right now for John O'Connor. Five and a half years ago, and I was dressed a little differently. It was at the Eagle Bar in Boston. It was cold. I had on a leather pants, leather jacket, and I was feeling good. And I was just trying to figure out who would be the lucky guy to be with me that night. <laughs> and unfortunately, I saw this sort of sad guy in the corner with a bad puffy down coat and a scraggly beard. And I thought, what the hell is he doing in here? He's clearly not gay. I must talk to him. <laughs> so I did, and he sort of had a sort of sad story, whatever. The bar closed, and it was like, do you need a place to stay? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I do. So we went over to my house, and I thought, this isn't going to happen. I just know it's not going to happen. But we'll give it the college try. Didn't go anywhere, and the energy changed very quickly. And I quickly realized, wow, I've got a situation on my hand here. Someone is totally out of their league right now. And I said, do you want to go downstairs and meet my puppy, Ahab? He's like, yeah. So we went downstairs into the kitchen. We played with the puppy, who was about not even a year old. Went to bed. Nothing happened. Went to breakfast the next day. Had a nice breakfast. And I felt kind of let down, but what the hell? Behind every letdown is an opportunity for unimagined joy and growth. And so over the months, never saw him again, but he had left enough clues behind about who he was from our conversation, sort of tracked his family down, picked up the phone. <laughs> he doesn't fucking live here anymore. Bang, the phone went down, and I'm like, oh, OK. OK, Dad. Great. So I got a message you know, from him about a month later that said, hey, I understand you're trying to find me. I'm actually back in Boston. I'm like, oh, cool. Let's get coffee. So we go out for coffee, and he's sitting there, and he's looking really, really bad. And he confesses that he's homeless and has been living on the streets now for months. And he's a heroin addict. And he's a mess. And it's not good. And I'm like, oh, OK. Well, let's just try and keep this going. So we developed a friendship, and it went on for several months. And clearly, he was going downhill very quickly, series of overdoses, living out on the streets in the middle of winter. So I would let him come into the office, change clothes, give him some clothes and things like that. And it finally got to the point where he ended up in Mass General Hospital with a flesh-eating bacteria on his foot. And they were about to amputate his foot. So I was lying on the bed, holding him down while the doctor was trying to do a biopsy to make a determination of exactly what sort of bacteria this was. And then the uh, orthopedic surgeon came in for a consultation, who I knew. And they were like, we're going to give it one more day, and we'll see if we can turn this around. And they turned it around, and he was there for two weeks. We pulled every string, got him a doctor, primary care physician, got him into the Mass General Hospital, and we thought he was going to be discharged to a rehabilitation center. That was the promise. <coughs> and we were let down. 
I found him on the street with a bandaged foot, no cane, and a jar full of Percocets, and told that he should self-wean. So we didn't really know what we could do with that. I was totally out of my league and didn't know what the fuck I was doing. So he said, just leave me alone. I'm all set. I'll sleep on the bench. I've done this before. And I was like, no, get in the car. You're with me. So I didn't know what to do. We'd been let down by the system. So I brought him to a hotel. I checked him in. And I took all his clothes because I knew if he didn't have any clothes, he couldn't leave. And if he did, they'd pick him up and they'd find him pretty quickly. <laughs> a lot of time went by. And finally, he got into a program. And I felt, yes, this is good. I'm coming down to Provincetown and I'm going to relax. And I went out and got shit-faced two nights in a row and realized, wow, this is, this is, this is bad. This is really bad. Reconnected with him back in Boston, halfway house, and we made a deal that we were going to get sober together. I wasn't going to drink. He wasn't going to shoot dope anymore. Made it six months, and there was a big letdown. Thrown out of the sober house, he went back out. Talk about a letdown. I cried that day more so than I have ever in my life and thought, never going to see him again. But behind every letdown is an opportunity for more growth, for more joy. And that's exactly what happened over the course of five years. No one's perfect, but everyone's doing the best that they can. And there have been many letdowns since. It has been a rough, rough road. But through those letdowns, life has gotten better. Both of us are immeasurably better people than we were five and a half years ago. Now the struggle isn't, am I living outside? Am I going to die tonight? Am I going to have another overdose? It's more, gee, I'm running a business. I'm having a really hard time. I don't know how to manage money. My partner just <laughs> left me. It's a mess. There are letdowns. And behind those letdowns are chances for growth and more joy. And today, Caleb and I are here at the Mosquito. And we're both filled with joy to be here and to share this story with you. Thank you. Pat Medina. My story starts, I'm a young girl. I'm living in a house of chaos. And all I could think to myself is, I wish I lived in a cave. <laughs> of course, not with the bats or anything like that, but you know, in a cave, just like quiet and darkened and alone and just leave me alone now. Okay, so I get a little older and you know, as usual, I'm scrounging for work in New York City and doing everything I possibly can to find some work. And you know, I'm willing to lie. It's okay, I can lie, and do you do this? Oh yeah, <laughs> of course, yeah. What kind of, re I'll change that on my resume. Okay, so, um, so I end up walking into this place that has a help wanted sign out on the window, and it's called the Stat Store. So I, it's on 7th Avenue, it's really great, and I walk in, and can, can you work these huge computerized cameras 
in the dark room, and I think to myself, this is my cave. <laughs> yes. So I go in, and I look at the cameras, and I said, uh, well, I'm not familiar with this model, per se. <laughs> so the manager of the place says, oh, yeah, this one, oh, this one is great camera, look. And he does this whole thing, and I'm thinking, I could be the bat in the cave and do the dance and everything, <laughs> and this would be great. And I said, oh, yeah, I could do that. And he said, okay, because, you know, you can start tomorrow if you want. And I'm like, yes, okay, um, how much do you pay? <laughs> it didn't matter. I wanted the job. It was a nice, clean, dark room. It was dark, nice, you know, atmosphere. The people were nice when I walked in. It was like, hey. So, um, so I said, yeah, you know, I probably need a little time to get used to the camera. He says, well, if you want to play with it now, you can. And I said, great. So I did that, and I found the manual. And, you know, I tested a couple of things. Now, you're talking like 16,000 watts of light, like, disturbing my cave, and that was fine. I brought the manual home, and overnight, I thought I learned how to work this camera. <laughs> so I went in the next day, and within, like, a year or so, I was the top camera person <laughs> at this place. I was going out and visiting with clients who were doing designing and needed, you know, stat room operations, and this was you know, pretty high tech for the time. So I became top in my field doing this camera work from a manual. <laughs> but I learned a lot about like the photo papers and stuff like that, and I asked for a raise. And he said, we've actually given you enough raise, you're at your plateau right now with raises. <laughs> he says, maybe you want to think about color. And I thought, oh no, black and white is like <laughs> totally me, you know. <laughs> the extremes, black or white. There was no gray, but I had to learn all about those tonalities when I was in there. Okay, so I, he said, you know, I wish you luck. I'll give you great recommendations, but I think we need to kind of boot you out. So I went back to driving a taxi, and I was driving a taxi in New York, and I was driving a truck for a publication house that was giving me muscles because I was lif lifting boxes of magazines. I became a board artist, so I learned all about the everything behind the photostatting thing. A few years later, I'm living in Manhattan, and I see in the newspaper that Goldman Sachs, the top brokerage firm of New York City, is hiring. And they want a part-time darkroom person. So I go in, and they have this old, ugly machine that, of course, they hire me. But in the hiring, he said, wow, you know a lot about this stuff. So he brought me to the vice president, who then told me they were in the process of moving, but they wanted to set up this big cave for me. Um, uh, <laughs> no, this big dark room for me. <laughs> so I said, okay, well, what would what I need to do? Would it be part-time? They No, you're going to set the whole thing up. So when we get into the new buildings, you'll be in charge of setting everything up, ordering the paper, ordering the components of the dark room, training the staff. And I said, well, the first thing we have to do is we have to get them in sneakers. We are not going to be like brokerage firm looking people. <laughs> we need to look like bats. <laughs> so I had that going on. And he said, but right now we're not ready. So we're going to hire you on this little piece of shit machine that we have here. He didn't say it like that. It was the vice president. Come on, guys. So I went home, and I was like, ooh. And my partner that I was with at the time, she said, oh my god. 
there are like all kinds of benefits. You get the highest bonus ever, you know, anywhere in the city. These, all the vacation pay, everything. And I was super, super excited. But they kept giving me hours in the middle of the night. And it was down Wall Street area, down lower Manhattan, going through the Bowery and the subways, you know. I was kind of like skinnier then and less threatening looking. And <laughs> I wasn't kind of into my bat kind of thing that I was going to be doing. So I kept going. Finally, I said, look, guys, I appreciate you throwing me little bits and pieces of work. And they said, yeah, yeah, we know. It's getting really impossible. So why don't you go do something else? And when we complete the move, we will call you. And I said, that sounds fair. I won't commit to any long-term job, but I'll be on call for whenever you call me. So they said, OK, great. So I go home. And my partner's like, oh, that's the best thing. You were working like these crazy hours. And I said, yeah, I know. So, of, thank you. Of, <laughs> <laughs> really. So a few weeks later, I call, and I'm like, you hear anything? No. You hear anything? No. This went on for years. <laughs> they never called me. I was so let down. You have no idea. For years, I held on to this. I would still hold on to it. Only thing is that in the year 2001, when 9-11 happened, Goldman Sachs was in the World Trade Center. So there were lessons to be learned. I handle disappointment a lot better these days. So here I am to tell the tale. to figure out the real letdown. It was marriage. <laughs> um, I waited too long. I was actually 50. Um, I had already had a kid with somebody. No marriage was involved in that. I didn't make that mistake. Um, and then the kid was sort of growing up, and he had a father. That was fine, but I wanted him to have a normal life with a normal family. So I found this boyfriend, and things were going really well while we lived apart. But he had never had kids. And um, he was cool with my kid, uh, but he wasn't really dad material. He was almost stepdad material, almost. <laughs> but he had had a really bad childhood. I mean, who hasn't had a bad childhood? <laughs> and. Um, he had a different attitude about parenting, and it sucks to be a step-parent. I mean, I never have had that privilege, but, you know, you don't get a vote. You just, there are two parents that are dealing with the kid, and you're just like the person that picks up the pieces and listens to all the fights and stuff. Um, but it was, you know, it was really fabulous while we lived in separate places. But then I had never been married, and I had this kid, and my parents were getting older, and I wanted to party. And, and so we sort of made a deal. I think the deal was something like he could move in with me if he married me. Um, I don't remember why I made that deal. <laughs> I think I just, something about my kid having a normal father, which he was very normal. That was the problem. He was normal, you know, um, which felt refreshing after his, the real father, but it, he was normal. 
so kind, nice, predictable, show up, shows up, you know, hold the door open, all that stuff. Um, so he moved in, and then the idea was that we couldn't live there because he didn't like condos, he wanted a real house. And um, we got the house, and then we said, okay, we better get married, or I said we better get married, or my parents said we better get married, I don't know, my parents were so, so much in shock about this. So we were really good at projects, we were a very good team. We, we could, two of us could have accomplished just about anything if we hadn't lived together with the kid. Um, so we, we planned a great wedding. I mean, we, we figured it out. It was in Falmouth. It was very romantic. It was this beautiful place. We had the great band. We had a great honeymoon. We had, but the night after the wedding, the night before we left for the honeymoon on Martha's Vineyard, I didn't want to leave the wedding because all my friends were there and I was supposed to leave with my husband to go to Martha's Vineyard to some place. Like, all my friends were here. Why was I going with him? <laughs> You know, that wasn't a good sign. Um, I guess we had an okay honeymoon. Um, so what I think about this, all this is that um, it was me. I forced him to marry me, let's face it. I coerced him, I did. And it was something that I hadn't done before. So I thought, well, everybody else has done this thing and, and it's my chance to do it. So I better do it. So I had that moment, I had two dresses. I had one that I wore for the ceremony and then I had another, I couldn't just have one. And then I went, I had another dress that I put on for the party. Um, and my parents were so happy that, that I was marrying. They were just so happy. I was you know, a very shameful daughter. I had been with many men and I had a child with one and they were glad I didn't marry him actually. They wanted me to, but they were actually relieved that I never did. That was a problem. And so, so the moral, this is the story, what this story really means to me is that, um, you know, the divorce was fun. We did that, we did projects well. So the next, pro first we tried to renovate the house and the, ho the house was no good and we were no good and the, nobody could find a solution to the house that we moved into. And then it was, you know what, this really isn't working. It's just not working. There's just no joy here. It's not fun. He wanted my son to practice the piano. Yeah. I feel like if you just fool around on the piano and you have fun once a week, that's great. You love music. And he, he must practice the piano. And I said, you're the step parent. You don't get a vote. So he was kind of unhappy, too. It wasn't just me that was very bored, but I was bored. And my conversations with my kid, who was now, by, by now he was around nine years old. Um, we were together for a few years after. And my conversations with my, ch my nine-year-old were amazingly interesting compared to the, the conversations with my husband. I mean, my kid, we, we talk about Charlie Chaplin and art and politics and music, and my husband would be like, I had a really bad day at work today. It was either the employees or the machines or the, the insurance, or it was always, he was always stressed out, he was always depressed. Except on vacations, he was fun on vacations. But as soon as we got home, it was miserable. So, and I was a terrible daughter-in-law. I didn't like his parents, and I didn't want to go there for dinner. And I didn't want to like give gifts to people that I didn't know because they were in his family. I, I, it, was, it wasn't good. So the night that we decided to get divorced, we, we were hysterically laughing. We immediately went into the computer. We figured out the finances, which we had never joined anyway. We just separated all the, oh, you pay for this, do, 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 do. We did it, 
We were laughing hysterically. We got divorced. The hardest part was telling my parents. Oh. End of story. Oh. Lise King. Lise! Growing up here in Provincetown as a kid, I remember the first time that I saw, first I heard them, July 4th Parade, the fife and drum coming down the street and having this incredible feeling. Like, you guys, can you hear it? The fife and drum, doo, 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 you know, coming down the street in the 4th of July Parade. And I, rem I remember looking up, so I my age, because I was looking up at them as they were going by, and I just remember. And I got just overwhelmed, and I started crying. And I told my mom, if you all know my mom, Bunny, and she's kind of a very left of center political person. And, and I said, Mom, I th I, and, and she thought it was ridiculous that I was crying at the fife and drum in the 4th of July parade. And I think ever since that moment, I've been very patriotic. Um, patriotic in a way that was about, I think, what I feel is the best of what this country is supposed to be. And um, so with all my patriotism, I had never dressed up to vote before in an election. And in November of 2016, how many of you wore white to vote in 2016 election? Right? I went shopping for something white in my closet. And I found a linen suit that I had bought many years before for something that I'd worn once. And I thought it was a really big deal, you know? And uh, I had met Hillary when she was here for her fundraiser. I had the honor and privilege of taking photos uh, behind the scenes. And, um, and I said to her when she thanked me for taking the photos of Cher with all of the big money donors, thank God I didn't know it was $5,000 a pop or I would not have been able to take those pictures. I would have been too scared. Um, but she thanked me and I said, oh, thank you for, I said, you, you have to win. You have to win. And she said, with your help, I will. I thought, oh, what a perfect thing to say. So there I was dressing in white to march down by myself to Provincetown Town Hall and cast my vote. And I just felt really proud. And I took a moment. Um, I, I, I did my undergraduate study at Mount Holyoke College and I studied American social history. That was, my, that was my major. And I took a moment to remember the suffragettes and I took a moment to remember that you know, 100 years ago, women didn't have the right to participate. So I had this overwhelming feeling of patriotism, feeling hope and joy and participating in the process. And for those of you who know me, it's kind of what I love to do. Right? Um, and that night, I was at Julian Sears' party when we were all overjoyed that he, all the returns were coming in and his mother was crying and they were quelling and he was just having this wonderful time and he was winning. Julian, our homeboy, right? And on the television screens behind him, the election results were coming in. And I was checking my phone. I was, how many of you got obsessed with Nate Silver before the election? <laughs> I was like, holy shit, this can't really be happening, right? So I'm like looking at my phone and, and I'm, having, I'm like overjoyed for Julian and I'm looking at my phone and watching the television. And I remember going home that night and just 
feeling shell-shocked, feeling very let down. And the next morning, waking up and feeling that feeling, you know, when someone's died. I mean, you wake up having feeling normal, and then all of a sudden you remember what the fuck just happened. And just that feeling of just existential dread and going, what, what, what do we do? So I looked on my bookshelf and um, there was a book sitting on my bookshelf that sits near where my bed is. And I pulled it off of my bookshelf and I opened it to the frontispiece where it had been signed to me. And, I, and, and, and that book took me back in my memory to 2008 I had the honor and privilege of serving on traveling press for the Obama campaign. And I was on the airplane with Obama um, whenever he went to Indian country, because my ex-husband and I, we owned a national Native American newspaper called The Native Voice. And we became traveling press for Indian, uh, pool press for Indian country. So we were giving away everything we did on the campaign for free to all the tribes, all the local outlets that wanted it. And it's very expensive, you know, to be on traveling press. There's a reason why independent media isn't a part of traveling press for presidential campaigns. It cost, back then, it was about $3,000 a day. So we were very lucky. We had a lot of folks sponsor us. So when I got on the plane, of course, it was amazing. And getting on the plane, and I'm like, you know, they, they have to, the dogs, you have to put your stuff down, and all the dogs sniff the stuff, and then you do the, you know, the ee, 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 with the thing, and you turn around and you do the thing, and uh, then I'm getting on the plane with all the other members of the traveling press, and I'm just like this little independent press out of South Dakota, and at that time I was living out there, and that's where we did our, our work from, and we get on the plane, and I'm in the back, of, we're in the back of the bus, and they, so in the front, of, the front of the plane is all pristine. You get to the back of the plane, you go through this curtain, and there's like a fucking party back there. <laughs> That's where the press lives, and I mean lives. Because I was only on there, you know, when he was in Indian country, so for days at a time, and I'll, I'll get there. Um, and um, for days at a time, but some of these guys, like for CNN and Fox, they've been on there for weeks and weeks. They literally have a camped out space with all their pictures and stuff hanging from the ceiling and a little, there's a disco ball back there and there's an open bar. And anyway, so we go to take off and the plane takes off like this. I'm like, what? They're like, oh yeah, the pilot is a military pilot. So um, wheels up and wheels down is like this and like this. It was incredible. Uh, they roll oranges up the center aisle for fun <laughs> while we're taking off. It was like, bowl, it was incredible. So <laughs> the secret, I'm getting to the end. So the secret was, this guy came up to me, he goes, hey, by the way, when we land in Chicago, you know, where the, that's where we rest, he said, there's a Barnes and Noble down the street from where we all stay in the hotel. And if you bring Obama's books on the plane, he'll sign it for you. And I was like, really? Okay. Now, I had about six people who had really donated a lot of money, including, including a woman who was dying of cancer, breast cancer, who had sponsored us to be able to have this incredible experience and be of service in this incredible way. So I didn't just do one book, I did six books. <laughs> I went to Barnes & Noble, went down the street, six books, brought them on the plane, <coughs> and Reggie Love, you guys remember who Reggie Love was, his body man? He comes back and he's all smiling and, and I handed him six bucks. I'm like, yeah, really? 
Is this possible? Anyway, about an hour later, he, they said, put in each book, put what it's for. So about an hour later, he comes back, and um, all the books are signed. And that book that I kept for myself was The Audacity of Hope. And that was the book I pulled off the shelf the morning after the election in 2016. And that's what I want us all to hang on to, the audacity of hope. And we're going to get there, folks. Thanks. for Sylvia. So this is a story that is set um, in a theater. The best, most spectacular role I ever had, um, I had at age 33. I was walk leaving work and walking, and I passed a billboard, and it said, open auditions for the crucible. And I went in, and I read, and I was called back, and I was cast as Abigail Williams, who is 17 years old. And if you don't know the play, she's the ringleader. And she's the one where when she points and says, you know, you turned me into a witch, or a, you know, you are a witch, you turned me into a screaming bird. And all the other girls follow her, so she's the ringleader. In that play, I had an uncle uh, named uh, Reverend Parrish. It's, it's a famous play. And the director in that play used to have us run uh, small uh, improvs together. And I never understood why, because they were very dull and boring, like you both want the same bowl or you have to throw a ball back and forth. And I asked her once after that play was over, I said, why did you have me do so much improv with yada, yada. And she said, to cut the sexual tension. I said, sexual tension? He's 11 years younger than I am. <laughs> <laughs> the next year, there was another open audition. And this one, well, this, that was a spring production. The fall production was, oh, the reason I would pass this billboard is because I taught at the law school. But the billboard was for the undergraduate theater department. So I should technically not really have been trying out, but it was a nascent theater department and the director was really into someone with a bit of you know, high school experience or something. So she cast me again and I had the lead role. I was the voice, the narrator in Under Milkwood. I had to walk around with a Walkman and learn a Welch accent and everything. And then I had a short cameo in that same production as Polly Garter. If you're not familiar with the play, this is going to wind up back to the, the kid, but <laughs> if, if you're not familiar with that play, Polly Garter is this sort of very small, uh, it's a very cameo role, and she's very buxom and lusty, and she's a washerwoman, and she has a low bodice, and she, she, uh, she comes on stage in the very beginning, and I remember the way we staged it, it was sort of a thrust stage, it went downhill, there was dry ice smoke, and she walked along, and, and I had this dish towel that the director said, fluff it up like, like, like it's a baby. I said, uh, uh, like it's a baby, like I knew what that was. And, you know, I mean, so I had the dish towel, and she said, and you're crooning to the baby, and, and the, 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 the line was something like, oh, you know, there you are in the morning, 
you're belting out your lungs and, you know, at the top of your lungs, crowing to the crows and everything. Oh, and you're so sad. And I was supposed to poke the little, you know, dish down. <laughs> you're so sad. Oh, ain't life a terrible thing? And then I'd look around at everybody and I'd go, thank God, you know. And I loved Polly Garter. I loved that character for the thank God. The last night of our performances, the director gave a big pitch and she said, you know, love your characters. This is the last time they'll be alive. And we had a great first act. And before act two, I had to change because I was leading. I don't know why that was just funny, but you know, we were, I, was, I would come on stage because Polly, Polly Garter had a song and I had to switch clothes out of the sort of um, chorus-like robe of the voice, the narrator, and I had to put the bodice on, I put the skirt on, I had to get my hair fixed up. And so one of the younger girls from Quincy, who is friends with the cast member who was 11 years younger that I had dallied with somewhat over the summer in between the spring production <laughs> and the fall production, she said, oh, she was doing my hair, she was blowing it dry because I liked it straight, so she was doing this and fussing with my hair, and we had like four minutes, and she said, oh, no, I can fix your bangs, I can fix your bangs, and she was rolling, she said, I know how to do this, you know, and she said, oh, my God, I didn't tell you, but I was talking to Mikey, I was talking to Mikey, and he's got to break up with somebody, he doesn't know how, and I go, really, <laughs> really, he has to break up with someone, she goes, yeah, and she's older, and I said, really, what exactly did he say, and she told me a couple of things that it was evidently getting serious for the older woman. And I turned around and the brush was stuck in my hair at that point. And I grabbed her by the shoulders and I said, I am that older woman. I am that older woman. And the lights went off and on and I had to go on stage. <laughs> and I walked out. And again, this is a thrust stage. Behind, the song is called Tom, Dick, and Harry. And I don't think Dick means what it does in English in the Welsh vernacular when Dylan Thomas wrote the play. But she sings about a Tom, she knows, and about a Dick, she knows, and about a Harry, she knows. And I walked out, and the way it was set up is there was a scrim behind the, the, the front and center um, ballad that I would sing, that the character would sing. And these men would come to kind of illustrate the, the characters that I was singing about. And I, my, the only, my only thought was I knew that this who shall, yada yada guy, had, had like the, you know, one of the, he was like the third character, the third, and I wasn't going to get to the third verse at all, and he wasn't going to be able to make his entrance on the scrim, and I sang the second verse three times, and nobody noticed a thing. Please welcome to the stage, Erica. Woo! Erica! So, I grew up a little bit um, up the street um, on Route 6A and Kumquit. Anybody know Kumquit? Um, it's a tiny little village in uh, Barnstable. And my father was a super, super talented artist. Um, his name was Ken Jansen. And um, he was never recognized. Um, uh, if you have any of his paintings, um, um, that's a great thing. He was a super talented person. 
Uh, he died in 2000. Uh, he was a smoker, unfortunately. So if you are a smoker, stop immediately. Um, died of lung cancer. Um, yeah. Um, so I um, ended up um, buying uh, the home um, that I grew up in. And it was, um, it was his studio, and it was his art gallery, and it was 6,000 square feet on five different levels. It was always changing, always changing. I mean, in addition to being super talented artist, he was a, a carpenter. I mean, I loved him dearly. Um, he was an amazing, amazing man. And um, when he died, my mother was there alone and freaking out. Um, so I was married at the time. Um, and I decided, you know, I'm going to buy this house, um, buy back my my childhood home, which I um, affectionately referred to as the House of Usher. And if you know the story, okay, um, yeah, okay. Um, so enough said. Um, in any case, uh, so yeah, um, the deal went through, and in 2001. Me and um, my, at that time, husband um, had the place. Um, I sank six figures into renovating that place. Um, I, was, I was totally into it. That was my second house. And um, I was, as I said, I was really into uh, architecture and uh, renovation and um, so that was in, starting in 2001. Um, March 21st, first day of spring, 2005, uh, 6 a.m., <gasps> the house burned down oh. while we were all in it. Yeah. Um, that was a letdown. Um, so um, I became an Ambien addict, by the way. Um, um, yeah, that was, um, that was pretty heavy. Um, so after that, um, when your house burns down, you usually get, you, you, um, you get um, these uh, folks who go in and um, assess all the... Um, the furnishings um, and um, negotiate with the insurance company, but the insurance company wasn't being, um, yeah, they were, were not being cooperative. Um, so we went in and did it ourselves. I was really into Excel spreadsheets at the time. So yeah, I went in and did it myself. Um, and because they weren't being cooperative, so I thought, oh, what the fuck, I'll just do it myself. And um, so we did that, and halfway through the process, the insurance company went bankrupt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, so that's a thing, um, and... Um, uh, so we soldiered on, and I 
in the meantime, started designing a new house. And um, we hired a builder who will remain nameless. <laughs> um, and so the deal was when an insurance company goes bankrupt, there's insurance for insurance companies, believe it or not. Um, and so when the insurance company goes bankrupt, it's actually not a bad deal because there's insurance for insurance companies, as it turns out. So we were able to get all the money from the house. Um, and my brilliant lawyer, um, suggested that uh, when we got the entire um, payout from the house, that we give it to the builder who had built half a house at that point. Um, and he promptly said, thank you very much. And I never saw him again. Okay, so I had half a house. At that point, it was like two years into the process. And my son was like, we're never getting back there. And I'm like, no, we're going to get back there. So I became subcontractor, which was really interesting. Um, we did get back in that house um, with... Um, a $60,000 loan from Bank of America um, at 20%. Um, yeah. Um, but, um, and um, the help of Home Depot, who I love, and uh, Job Lot, yeah, um, and um, various other um, cheap uh, uh, finishing vendors. So three years later, in 2008, we moved back in, um, and I built the home of my dreams, actually. Um, I have pictures of it. I know, I know this isn't going to be recorded, but I... <laughs> so I'll just show the front row here. <laughs> this is my house. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful, and I... I love it every day. Um, it's wall-to-wall -wall carpet, but it's really cool. <laughs> Thanks. Put your hands together now for Grace. I grew up in Portugal in a small city in an orphanage. And every year, we would go to the beach house every August 1st. The nuns would rent a big bus, and we'd get on the bus, and we'd go to the other side of the world. At least it felt like that. And um, this, it was, it was great for the whole month of August we would be there. The only problem about this beach is that the ocean was very dangerous, and uh, as soon as we got down to the beach, the first thing we'd look at was a flag. We'd have flags. They had a, a red flag, a yellow, and a red. And the red, it was dangerous. You couldn't get into the water. The most you would get is a little bit, just your feet wet. Yellow, you had to be extremely careful. And the green, you could just go swimming. So that was very important. Um, the nuns also would rent these two cabanas. 
And this was a very large beach and very long and very wide beach. And every year they rented in the exact same place. And next to us, there are always the same cabanas also. They're always the same families. And even though some were French, some were English, but they're always in the same spot. And um, there was a blue, um, uh, blue umbrella that was next to us. And there was a little boy, which was a bit of an unusual thing for us because we're just girls. There were four of, 40 of us. Uh, this boy was older than me, but I was very young when I first met this boy. Um, slowly, he started to play with us, and then he started to come to our cabana. And his mom and him, in fact, became so close to the orphanage that they actually got invited to come to dinner at the orphanage. That has never happened before. And um, every year, we would go, and the boy would be there, and would play with the boy. And then he became more of a teenager, and he became the boyfriend of one of the girls. Um, one year, I, um, we went to the beach, and the flag was green. And it was, you know, ocean day. You know, you could just go swimming. And I don't remember seeing that many people in the ocean, but the boy was there. His name was Juan Carlos. And he's there in the water, and he calls me to come in because it was great. But the problem, even with the green flag, you have to be very careful because if you step a little too far, which wasn't that far, you know, you could get water pretty high up. And he said, come on, it's, it's good. It, it, it's it, it's the water is nice to swim. And I get there, very close to him, and he said, come, come, I'll protect you. You know, I won't let anything happen. And all of a sudden, I feel pressure above my head. Under, my head is under the water, and I'm trying to get out of this pressure, and I know it's his hand, and he's under there. It's, he's pushing me under, he's pushing me under, and I'm trying to get out of there. And finally, I come out of the water, and I, deep, I, I take a breath, and before I even able to get anything, he pushes me down again, and he does it again, and I try again, and I'm splashing, he's been trying to get out of there. And I come out again, and he pushes me down. I swallow a bunch of water, and somehow I got out of there. I crawled out of the water, and I just sat there. And I open my eyes, and I look at him, and he's smiling at me. And I'm crying, and he's going like this. And I walked back to where the nuns are and the other girls are and I don't say anything to anyone. Not my sister, not the nuns, none of the girls. And this boy continued to come and play. And the years go by, and they never tell anyone. And he continues to be part so much, in, in fact, of this orphanage that even comes on vacation to the city, not just the beach house, but to the city where we live most of the year. Years go by, and three years ago, I get a friend request, and the name is Juan Carlos. And I thought, gee, that name sounds familiar. 
but they were managing Juan Carlos in Portugal, and I just figured maybe somebody friended me as a mistake, and I ignored it. But I'm curious because the name is too familiar, and I look at his face, and there's a hint of familiarity, but I'm not quite sure who he is. And a few days go by, and one day I'm talking to my sister, and she said, oh, guess who I was just talking to? And I said, who? Juan Carlos. And I said, who's Juan Carlos? And she said, you know, is Mila's boyfriend. And I know exactly who he is. And, I this, and I'm thinking, should I accept it, him as my friend request? The, and I wanted to do, and I wanted to say to him, you fucking tried to kill me, and I remember it. But I let a few days go by because I'm not sure if I want to do that. And I thought, yeah, sure. So I accepted. And he said, hey, do you remember me? And I said, yeah, I remember you. And we talked for a few days, and I never told him that I remember what he tried to do to me. In fact, I even tried to get him back to his first girlfriend because he has a bunch of kids and he's been divorced whatever many times and he's asking me for help. And I'm thinking, why am I not saying this? I'm actually disappointed in me that I'm not saying to this guy, you tried to kill me. And I know that. And so two years ago, I was going back to Portugal and he said, how about we get together? Um, because I was going to get together with a bunch of girls and some of the nuns. And I thought, no. And I said, well, it's not going to work out because this and that and blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm trying to be a better person than he is and not bringing it up. And still today, <laughs> I want to say to him, you tried to kill me and I remember that. And so the disappointment is me, not him. Thank you. Martha Clark. Martha. Okay, so as usual, I'm doing this on the fly because I came tonight not knowing if I was going to say anything or talk about anything. And yeah, apparently my name got put down by, you know, by these two here for at the intermission, so. <laughs> and I was there like two minutes ago, kind of going, please don't pick me, please don't pick me. And then you're talking about like, you know, one line for the intermission if you weren't picked, and like, I didn't even have a first line, as you can tell. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, um, I mean, it's been very moving hearing the stories here tonight, it really is. Um, and I've been in a couple of major relationships in my life, and I didn't know which one of them to talk about. Because when I woke up this morning, it was like, shit, is it let down here tonight? And is it the unexpected next week? Or is it the other way around? So I didn't know which. So I kind of had two, two stories half planned. Um, but basically, like one major relationship that I was in for, what, 15 years after it ended, I kind of decided, like, well, I need to get myself back out there. And I was, what, 32 or 33. And like dating sites or dating agencies had just started. This was pre-internet, lads. Um, yeah, I mean, we forget that there ever was a time pre-internet. But I joined a dating agency because a friend of mine said that after she split up from her husband, she said that women join Gingerbread, which is like, you know, a um, cheap and cheerful like support group for like if you're separated. And then she said, like, men don't join dating agencies. And I went, well, fuck that. I'll join both. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> 
so I did. So I was kind of on the, you know, the second level of the budget one, you know, and it was kind of like, you know, the, I don't know how many dates per, per month or something like that. And when I, look, when I look back on it, I used to plague them. <laughs> I used to ring them up and kind of go, well, he said he was like this and he wasn't like this. And he said he was like five foot seven. And I'm telling you, I'm five foot seven and he was really only five foot four. So I, <laughs> so, and this fella said he was 57, but like by the look of him, he was like 65. And, I, <laughs> and then I actually met the guy who ran the agency because this was, this was what, in the 19, this was 1983, I think. So there's only like two or three dating agencies, and if I'd had the money, I'd have joined all of them. But I, I only joined one, so I eventually met the guy who ran the agency. And I mean, God bless him, I don't think he knew what to make of me, because I was 32, and he said, like, you know, well, on your profile, you put, like, anything between the age of, like, 21 to 45. And I went, yeah, well, I'm just, like, maximizing my chances. And then, like, you know, some fellas would, like, try to set up a date, and they'd be in Limerick, and I'm kind of going, like, that's 130 miles away. I'm not maximizing my chances that much. So anyway, through that agency, I actually did meet one guy who completely broke my heart. Um, and we won't talk about him. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm kind of fast forwarding to like after the guy that I then married and then after I got divorced. And then I was kind of, what age was I then? I was 47 and it was a different world because we'd like internet dating and internet sites. And I was kind of going, well, like, you know, it's a different kettle of fish when you're putting yourself back out there when you're in your late 40s versus your early 30s. And then I was kind of thinking, well, sure, I've done all this before, you know, so, you know, I know it's on the internet now, but like the same kind of rules apply and I'll still like go for the whole Gemini thing of like maximizing my chances at all opportunities. <laughs> <laughs> so I was on like about five sites. <laughs> um, but I'd moved back to like West Cork, which is a very rural part of Ireland, and I was working in a very well-known guest house. So... I was kind of, you know, when I'd meet guys, I'd kind of like not tell them my real name. And I'd say like I worked in a bar, which technically was true, because even though I worked in a five star guest house, I did do the night shift in the bar. Um, and anyway, I met this guy on this on one of the sites and um, we ended up having a nine year old, a nine year relationship. And um, I always remember, you know, when he rang me um, and I was too nervous to meet him. And I remember the day I was going to meet him was the day that Ireland won the... It was, no, it was a week before Ireland won the Grand Slam. And I remember the day I was going to meet him, I was so nervous, I kind of, like, texted him saying, like, it'll be half an hour late. And I got a text back saying, like, don't dare the, do the I'm too nervous thing. You know, I'll meet you at 2.30 and that's it. And I kind of went, like, well, I'll fucking show this guy. I'll just turn up, I'll have coffee with him, and that'll be the end of it. Um, and anyway, we just we just clicked, and it became a very, very unconventional, very private relationship. And I never talked about it much because people would just completely misinterpret the relationship. But um, as some of you know, I moved to Italy about four years ago for two years, and I said I'd live in Italy for the rest of my life. And then I came back to Ireland, and then I ended up moving to the States. Uh, but part of the reason for that is my daughter's father died about a year and a half ago. He died in December 2017, and it was one of those moments it was just one of those deaths that was just completely earth-shaking and just changed your life and because I was kind of flying it in the states and I remember thinking like fuck like what am I going to do when I go back and how am I going to handle things with my daughter and how am I going to help her so I went back and I did as best I can but I always because my relationship with John still kept going you know when I was over in Italy and I always remember there was only like one time he ever told me he loved me but he actually showed it in a lot of ways because I mean I think a lot of women think that you know men they want men to tell them they love them and sometimes you know a guy is telling you he's showing you he loves you and he doesn't have to tell you um 
but I always remember um, it was about like eight months before I decided to go to the States. And I mean, the poor fella, I was probably driving him nuts because I was kind of going, will I go for three months? Will I go for six months? Will I go to the East Coast? Will I go to the West Coast? Will I go to California? Will I go to New York? Will I go fly Aer Lingus? Will I fly Norwegian.com? <laughs> I mean, the poor fella, he's like, you know, because for a period of about six weeks, whenever we'd meet up, it's like, where'll I go? What'll I do? How long will I stay? Um, and I always remember, and I keep these words in my mind, it's like he said, would you go way off to America and not be worrying about how you get back? And I kind of went, Jesus, I never thought of that. <laughs> never thought of that. Because, you know, I'm kind of quite focused and rigid and organized. And it's like if you go somewhere and you say you're going to do something, you have to do it. But anyway, Ruth's father's death just kind of blew my whole life out of the water. And another aspect of my, my relationship with John, it was, as I said, it was very unconventional. We never knew when we were going to see each other. And I always remember asking him one time, like, you know, because as the son was getting older, I just knew it wasn't going to be as easy to meet up with him. And I remember one time saying to him, like, you know, well, you know, why can't you plan things more than three or four days in advance? And I always remember his answer was, and it was like really to the heart and really honest. It was like, because I'll be afraid I'll let you down. And I kind of went, well, that's fair enough. You know, because women are kind of trained to think that if a man really loves you and is committed to you, like you plan things in advance and you do things this way and this, that way and your way. But basically, like, he ended the relationship within six weeks of, of David dying. So it's kind of like a double blow. Um, and some of you who know me do know that and the impact it's had on me. But, like, of all the two things I remember of that relationship, it was two things. One was, like, go way off to America. So here I am, folks. I never did go back. <laughs> Um, and to not be afraid and, you know, that he was afraid he didn't ever want to let me down. And even the way the relationship ended, he didn't actually let, actually let me down. So um, I hope that's an okay end to the story. Because <laughs> I didn't think it'd be caused. Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Vanessa Vardabedian with theme music and editing by Jay Hagenbuckle. Find your next opportunity to join us in person by following us on Facebook and be sure to subscribe to this podcast for more stories. Remember, tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live. Bye.